Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Welcome to Happy Path Programming. Uh, today, we have some friends who have been up in Crest Butte this week for the Rust Developer Retreat. And so we've been exploring some Rust stuff with some folks up here this week and been fun. So Yeah, yeah, this is the last day of the retreat and we've been uh, diving in and out of Rust and uh, it's it's been a, kind of a new experiment because we've been, let's see, we've had camping on the porch and on the floor and, you know, just, just, uh, it's it's been sort of like glamping, I think, because we've had all the, you know, everybody brought food and then we've been, you know, making meals and things like that. It's been, it's been pretty fun and we've been diving into Rust a lot and um, using AI to to write Rust examples, which has actually been really helpful. Yeah. And uh, Bruce's Bruce would continually say. Uh, when we ran into a problem or didn't understand something, just feed it in a chat GPT and see what it says. And we'd feed it code and say, fix this code. And then it would help us. It would help us. Wouldn't always, yeah. wouldn't always fix it completely, but it would move us forward. You know, sometimes it would get you unstuck. And also when I've been interested in a topic, I would just say, give me an example that demonstrates this. Yeah. Again, didn't always get it right the first time, but it would certainly move you forward a lot. So it was very yeah. helpful to do that. Yeah, and our the the project that I worked on mostly with participation from everyone here was around the easy racer thing, which is comparing different frameworks and languages for structured concurrency and different approaches there. So we'll get into that at the uh, after we talk about just general stuff. So right. Uh, before we go there, does anybody have anything they've worked on, things they learned about Rust, things that were interesting, surprising, any highlights that we're sharing? Or just what you worked on, what you learned? Yeah. yeah. What, what, what's your experience? What was your experience at the retreat? Just yeah. general stuff. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this is Gordon Weekly. Um, I was the one camping on the porch or... Yeah, I wouldn't exactly call that camping. I was sleeping in a tent. But, uh, <laughs> none, none, of, none of the other uh, uh, usual things with camping. But yeah, I uh, I came in. I had the skeleton of a, a little project that something I wanted to do for a while. I'll just tell the story. I have a terabyte drive at home that has all these pictures of my kids back from the early two thousands when we had a series of different digital cameras, and you know they were downloaded by whatever weird software they had onto. A hard drive on you know the desktop computer we had and eventually all that got shoved off on this terabyte drive and you know this thing's a real mess there's cop multiple copies of photos there uh, you know photos that have been resized they're just multiple copies in different directories there are photos that are have been resized or rotated or uh, whatever and so I had this idea of like gee it would be uh, well it would be nice to have these photos organized and the first thing is to get rid of all this duplication so I had this basic idea for a thing that would just walk across the file tree and try to identify what files it thought might be duplicated. You know, sort of starting off with like looking at file names and then doing like a, uh, a, a uh, cryptographic hash of it. And so anyway, I, I just had the skeleton. I had a little bit of code. Um, and uh, um, coming in, uh, 
you know, uh, I, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, I, I guess the, the, the main thing is like, like how super effective ChatGPT is at giving you help and specifically Rust. I've used it for other languages, but man, it's super effective in Rust. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, that was really surprising. Uh, Bruce is now on a first name basis with ChatGPT. He just refers to it as chat. So, um, the, uh, but yeah, I mean, I finished up basically yesterday, uh, you know, finished up what I intended to do, which was doing searches across the tree, uh, indexing things by their cryptographic hash and indexing things by sort of partial matches on file names and um, even started adding some tests because that partial match logic started getting complicated. And so um, got into uh, a little bit of the testing, trying to figure out, uh, you know, we, we actually had this philosophical debate yesterday on, on mocking because I was trying to mock out pieces of the, uh, the file system stuff. And, uh, you know, we got into a big debate. I actually eventually ended up abandoning mocking for that case, basically because of that discussion. But in any case, yeah, I mean, that, that was, uh, I guess my impression is not really having done much, you know, before this week is like, um, if you get code to run, it's going to, you know, it's very likely to work unless the one actual bug I had was forgetting a negation operator, a logical negation operator. And, you know, everything else, there was no, there was none of this fooling around, there was none of this, you know, I've got this dictionary of values, what did I name that key again, what are the types, on the, you know, whatever. It's like, the compiler forces you to deal with all of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and the only runtime errors I ever encountered were um, uh, files that didn't exist that I hadn't, I'd forgotten to create in my file system and stuff like that. But, you know, for the most part, it's like, you know, yeah, if you can get the code to compile, it's gonna run, it's gonna do what you meant it to. And, you know, the, the process is frustrating because you, you have to make a lot of decisions up front, but, you know, you pay that pain up front and then getting your code to run is like anticlimactic because, it's just like you've done all the hard work already. So, I mean, that's my overall impression. Nice. And you were able to get something working and tested and yeah, some good progress. Um, uh, still, still working through my tests again. I, I started, you know, making that uh, uh, the file match filing matching logic more complicated, and so you know, that's just honestly, it's right now my my uh, logic is messed up. But I got to go back and look at. It. But um, the uh, you know, yeah, I've, you know. Got, uh, got a test suite and I got this thing running and it's, you know, um, at least what I had as of yesterday afternoon was, you know, essentially what I set out to accomplish. So, nice. you know, that's that, that was pretty nice. And now it's sort of on to, um, you know, adding features and uh, gold, plating, gold plating the crap out of this. We, the great thing about these things is lots of people had uh, different ideas about, um, doing image matching, like, you know, approaches to figuring out whether an image has been rotated um, uh, uh, or, you know, ro rotated or resized or something like that. And, uh, you know, really got a bunch of good research done on like, yeah, how I can approach that problem when I get to the point I want to tackle it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's great having a lot of people around and I can just ask stupid questions like explain this to me and, you know, people are generally happy to explain it to you <laughs> so nice. yeah yeah that's cool nice to was there anything that stuck out in the rust language that was new or interesting as you're 
in language and you know I, I think the whole you know it's it's the same thing everybody runs into it's the you know it's this this whole concept of borrowing and understanding that rust is really really specific about ownership and um, you know and, and that's one of the things you have to think about there was one point where I was wrestling with some problem it was wanting me to you know wanting me to change well I mean it was an error I had to change something and the uh, the you know after thinking it through it's like well I guess the quick way to fix this is just to clone this object and um, uh, and you know which kind of hurt to do but then I realized after thinking about it for a minute it's like well you know this is this is the design choice I made and I have to stare every time I look at this code I have to stare at that clone thing and it has to hurt me and so eventually it's it's either like I'm gonna you know freak out over wasting the memory and go deal with that or I just deal with the fact that it's like well you know I had to make a lot of copies of memory to, to uh, make this thing correct yeah yeah I experienced the the borrow checker kind of the, the power of ownership in I was playing with um, in Tokyo there's a one-shot channel with a transmission channel side and a receive channel side and in the one-shot channel you can only have one receiver and one transmitter and it's kind of cool that the borrow checker actually enforces that it's like no you can't share either of those in multiple places because that's not allowed but the compiler can actually verify that oh you you actually it won't compile if you try to to share those references in multiple places and that was pretty brilliant yeah yeah and uh, I think a lot of people you know look come in and see the the uh, lifetime system as oh it's so that we don't have to have a garbage collector and what I've learned is that's only part of what it does that's the one that you run into initially but it also means that uh, with rust's generics you don't have to have any annotations for covariance or contravariance mm. like you do with JVM languages. And that is so nice. That is such a uh, wonderful thing not to have to think about. Uh, so, and then there's some other things. Well, like concurrency, uh, the, the lifetime system makes sure it, or it helps ensure that concurrency is correct as well like the example that you gave there yeah 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 the one the one i think my biggest pain point with rust this week was mutability because there's places where i you know i spent so much time just in the world of immutable that having to to do some things with mutability and then fight through some of the challenges with that. I think there was one compiler we were struggling with where it's like, oh, you can't do this because it needs a mutable version of this and you have an immutable version of this. And I'm like, oh, if everything was just immutable, that would certainly simplify things. And I get for like, you know, performance memory reasons mm -hmm. why they use mutability in places, but definitely like, like felt the pain of that mixed world and um, but we've learned that even in pure functional languages, you sometimes have mutability. I mean, it's it's usually behind a wall. So, yeah. I I think having done like you know most recently a lot of Kotlin Scala, the it's you know kind of intellectually painful 
to have to make things meetable. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I my first impulse after like the last year or so has been training myself to try to try to do things immediately. But um, you know, it's like you kind of have to suppress that and be like, yeah, this is a different language. And, yeah. You know. See, I, I had the exact opposite problem of Jim. So I, I come from a almost strictly Python background, and um, I, I am not big into functional languages. Not not that I don't like it. I just have not had a lot of exposure to it. Um, and so I was exploring creating a game using Rust this week. Um, I, I'm kind of an amateur game dev. And uh, that's an area where I, I was really struggling. Everything, I was like, okay, <laughs> everything's mutable right now. We're just gonna, you know, we're gonna pass these things around. Everything needs to mutate, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, no, I feel like, I feel like I want this to be immutable, but I'm not quite sure <laughs> like what the right way to do that is. So I had the yeah. the opposite problem that you had where you wanted every you know everything wanted to be immutable and I was like, no, everything feels like it needs to be immutable. Um, and I, I'm struggling to find out where I can make things immutable. So that was that's been a struggle for me. But um, it's, it's a yeah, it's a it's an evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the interesting thing is is that you know what I was running into is I had a uh, you know, I had a function that was called from, it was actually an argument to another function. And then that function was working off of a data structure that, you know, itself at the very key core had a member field that had to be mutable because that was the purpose of this function was to go through and populate this, uh, this data structure. And um, I spent some time wrestling around with that because it was saying, you know, this little function right in here, which is like, a, a, you know, pretty deep into the call chain, is trying to modify this thing, which was declared way out here, and the compiler traces all the way through and said, nope, you have to flag this as a mutable function because you're mutating something. And that's, it's really, 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 I, I think you would really have to work hard to uh, to try to subvert that because it, it's just deep into the compiler that it's gonna yeah. check all that for you. Yeah, yeah, it's very meticulous. So what were you working on, Duncan? Okay, um, so, See, I came to Rust writing Python extension modules. Um, so NumPy and SciPy um, give a real performance boost to Python, but some algorithms ca- can't be cleanly expressed in using that approach. Mm. Um, and we had some success porting just the performance critical parts of some applications, um, some signal processing algorithms. So this week I've been thinking about um, using Rust for higher level um, problems like scientific programming in general and web applications. Um, so I, I was looking at Axum, which is a web framework. And I've been trying to think about um, error propagation. Um, Basically, there's there's a question mark operator which I, I feel it should have a name, um, but the flat question map. <laughs> that's what <laughs> yeah. I was thinking. It's effectively it's kind flat of like map. a flat map. Yeah. yeah, but that that really helps you to write um, code that's that's really clean. Um, deal with the get the domain logic. Um, there's a single level of abstraction principle where you're trying to have everything at the same level of abstraction and just with question marks and then deal deal with all the errors at a higher level. Um, and I um, was serving up a Svelte UI um, from Axum 
I work a lot with single page applications and so Rust and Axum and Svelte seems like an interesting direction. Yeah. Uh, on the question mark operator, I, it is nice um, that it's, it, it's more general than, than like in Kotlin, the question mark is only on a knowable type. Uh, the fact that you, I think, can put a question mark on not just result, but on option and other things, it can kind of um, chain onto multiple types. I don't know if it does that through a type class or... Um, yeah, I just I went and asked chat about, I go, what are the different ways to handle errors with result? And it listed a bunch of things, then it missed at least one thing, which I said, well, what about is error? Oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know, but so that and there's a bunch of different ways that you can handle the result. But one of them, I mean, the cleanest way is the question mark, which extracts the uh, success. success value, and then if there's a failure, it basically uh, throws it out to what well, doesn't throw it. That's the wrong <laughs> word. It passes it out into the result of the the function that you're inside of, and it just makes it really clean it's really it's really nice and i guess if you were in scala it would be the for comprehension and in haskell i think it's the do do notation yeah do notation right so it's uh, picked up from that but it's nice that they don't use any you know functional they don't mention anything about monads and all that kind of stuff because they they don't want to go down that path, hmm. but but when you look at it, you realize, oh, that's what it is. The result is a monad, and the question mark is basically a flat map, I think. Yeah, the I think I ran into some challenges with this, where in the world of monads, you get into the whole thing of monad transformers, where let's say you've got an option and a result, and you need to kind of munge those two hmm. things together that's where in the world of monads you then get into monad transformers and it gets all tricky um and i don't think that rust had a direct way to do something like monad transformers and so then you have to do some kind of manual unpacking and, and pattern matching um which which gets a, a little bit nastier than i'm used to um but it wasn't it wasn't too bad um the one really nice thing in rust is not having exceptions and mm -hmm. just and this is very similar to what the way that i write code in colin and scala is putting the the uh, exception or the error into a data type um, like result in in uh in rust and that was that felt so much nicer than, than the world of exceptions yeah i mean basically exceptions are side effects right yeah yeah. So yeah, they're just like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So not not dealing with exceptions was certainly nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was looking at or my because I've been looking at um, structured uh, concurrency in Python, and so I was in particular was looking at cancellation and seeing how Python when you cancel something it um it actually monitors it, it puts the code in for you 
to monitor for cancellation and do all the necessary cleanup. So I was curious about, you know, how does rust do that? How is it contrasted? And its cancellation system is, uh, they call it cooperative cancellation. And it means that you actually have to look for, you have to put in one of those one-shot um, uh, channels and then you have to look for somewhere in, in your task, you have to be looking for a cancellation signal. And then when that happens, you can return from it or uh, you know wh whatever it is that you wanna do so it's explicit. So Rust tends to be a lot more explicit in things, but it does, uh, we did figure out that in the Tokyo library when we were using the select, it does, uh, so what select does is it runs a number of tasks against each other. And the first one that succeeds, uh, it returns as its result, and then the rest, it cancels. And it does do cleanup when it does that. So, so there, is some, there is some automation, but also you have to be ready to do it yourself. Um, uh, you know, monitor for cancellation yourself in, in normal code. Yeah. Uh, so, anybody have any other thoughts or things they learned before we go into structured concurrency? Dive into that. Yeah, I, I guess one, one point in the question mark operator, what came out of that was like, um, there is an error message around using that that uh, is actually one of the rare, rare times. That one of the nice things is being somebody learning the language is the compiler gives you a lot of help. Um, about 80% of the time, it's going to give you a hint as to what you probably need to do. Um, and in this one particular case, you use the question mark operator in a function that doesn't return an option or result. The, uh, the error message is a little confusing, and, but effectively that's what it's saying is, you know, you can't do this because you can only use the question mark operator in a function that returns option or result. And it, it kind of made me think of with respect to concurrency, if you work in these languages that have uh, async operators, you have the whole idea of uh, what color is your function. And it's kind of the same thing, that you've got to decide, am I going to follow this normal error protocol? And if I do, then I can use you know, things like shortcuts like question mark operator. If I don't, then you know, you're stuck with some more manual way of handling stuff because you don't have a way to, to really propagate out those errors. So it kind of it's kind of the same situation that governs how you design your functions because you know you have to think about you know, how am I going to return errors? So what am I going to do if I didn't error? Yeah, right. And if the question mark produces an error that isn't part, basically the general idea is if it produces an error that isn't part of the signature of your return type, mm -hmm. the compiler will say, "Oh, that won't work because right. you've told me that this thing returns a." you know, this particular kind of error and the question mark produces a different kind of error. So you have to go up and, and specify it. Yeah. Yeah. So. The one tricky piece that we ran into and did figure out around this was if you've got a function that can fail in multiple different ways, mm -hmm. how do you then put that into the error, error channel, um, the error type? And the, the way that I would do that in Scala is with uh, a sum type that mm -hmm. is um, a fails, well in our case it was uh, either a request error, so the request failed in some way, 
uh, or a timeout error. And through an anonymous sum type, you can just say request error or timeout error. Mm-hmm. And the, it seems like there's an open proposal in Rust to add anonymous sum types to the language, but I don't think it's available yet. And so what we ended up doing was creating an enum mm-hmm. to represent that sum type. But then we had to transform our air into the, that, that enum mm-hmm. um, to, to represent that. So it, it was fine. Um, but yeah, if, it, if there were anonymous sum types, it would have cleaned that up uh, a bit. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet feature. Python has it as well. And what about, does, does Kotlin have something like that? Well, you would do it the same way that we ended up doing it with Rust with an yeah. enum or something. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so I guess you call it an enum an explicit sum type. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so that that part wasn't wasn't too bad. I mean, we were able to model our data structure fairly easily in the way that we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the async support out of the box is, is definitely nice. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I, I felt like, yeah, the async, async stuff felt, felt like a good approach, and, but pretty typical, I think, these days of the yeah. colored function <laughs> approach mm-hmm. of, yeah, you need to indicate this is async. Um, and we were able to get through all of the uh, easy racer exercises, yeah. mm-hmm. at least with Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, which is seems like the most like the first library you you should reach for if because it's there isn't a Rust's philosophy is providing just enough in the core language but not assuming that there's an operating system. Yeah, which is really nice if you're working on hardware like the interview that we did I don't know a year ago. Yeah, they were able to put something on hardware that was using async and thus have shorter wake-up times and then longer battery life. Yeah. Well, okay, that's pretty neat. But their uh, architecture has to be a little different to do that. And so you always have to go find a library. And there's there's not, you know, like Python has the built-in async I.O. library, whereas Rust, you have to choose a library. But the most common one uh, is Tokyo. And that, but that assumes you have an operating system. Yeah. So building everything with that. Yeah. Uh, oh, I wanted to point out one of the other challenges that I had was the error messages are often really helpful, but as soon as we dove into the world of using macros in more um, uh, more complex ways, then some of the the nice things that you usually get with the error, helpful error messages did fall apart a bit as we went into macro land. And that was specifically on the the Tokyo Select macro, and I remember struggling through that a bit because the error messages all of a sudden weren't as helpful as they were when you're in non non macro land. I think it depends on the macro writer. That was my impression. In I other words, could it, you try again? It could be. Um, it it I could be. On the web. It could be well done. But um, it requires the macro writer to, you know, know enough about it to, to. But I could be wrong about that. Maybe yeah. it's just in your maybe the macro is. could have, do a better job. Yeah, at, at helpful error messages mm-hmm. or something. Right. Yeah. yeah, and it was interesting to see in in Tokyo Select's case that 
they they almost use they almost created like a DSL. It's the first time I'd seen in Rust using a macro to to create a DSL looking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the challenge with that is that whenever you're in kind of a DSL land, you're no longer in in the normal land. And then I need more documentation, more examples, more assistance because I'm in kind of a different, a little bit different of a world. And so I remember with Tokyo Select kind of struggling with what is this thing doing? It's not normal Rust code. So so what what do I do in in this in in this macro DSL land? And most macros that we use, whether you know Printland, whatever, don't have yeah straightforward. They don't have kind of a DSL to it, but. Tokyo Select had, had a bit of a... Yeah, that was kind of an eye-opener because you realize, oh, it's possible to create a kind of a DSL inside of a macro. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and I don't know how common that is in Rust beyond Tokyo Select. Mm-hmm. Like, if that's... If First that's time I've seen it, but I, you know, I don't have vast experience, so it could be a common thing that we just haven't seen much of. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other thing we realized there was that um, as we were working through Easy Racer, so Easy Racer is a bunch of scenarios to uh, to test approaches to structure concurrency, and the the basic ones say, okay, race these two things against each other, and Tokyo Select is a really easy way to do that race. Uh, but we discovered when we got to the scenario three in Easy Racer where you have to race ten thousand concurrent things. Uh, the macro doesn't work because it's it's a runtime sized thing and the macro works. Yeah. Uh, well, the ten thousand is. Um, well, your yeah, your problem required runtime sizing, yeah, but yeah. the macro says you have to explicitly say here are all of my tasks. Here are all my tasks. Yeah, it was not made for the dynamic. It was not made. Yeah, exactly. Thing that you wanted. So then we had to find a different approach for that particular mm-hmm. one. Um, but it was interesting, like, oh, the macro is super helpful when you're in the constraints of what they've designed it for. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that a macro could do what we were trying to do because it has to be run at compile time. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, like, when you look at uh, the sort of the initial use case for the macro is, oh, I have a variable argument list. Well, Russ goes, well, we don't do that. You have to have everything at compile time, but the macro can actually handle that. But then it's, so the idea is it's like, okay, it writes the code for your multiple different arguments, but then the compiler goes through and it says, all right, I know everything at compile time. So yeah, that's the kind of Rust philosophy is, we gotta know everything at compile time. So, yeah, any other thoughts or learnings before we go on to structured concurrency? Um, I don't know. This was, a, this was a very good week for me. I just, yeah, I felt like I moved forward significantly. Nice. It was really nice to have everybody around kind of working on the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, a good, it's a good experience. It's fun. Um, so Bruce, Bruce and I were, Bruce has been exploring structured concurrency and I was trying to get the Easy Racer Rust stuff working this week, um, which is structured concurrency oriented. And 
Maybe we should start with what is structured concurrency? You want to take a stab at it? Sure. Yeah, it comes from, well, the reason for the structured term is because way back, like in the 60s, um, some of the computer scientists started noticing that all the go-tos produced crazy, unmaintainable code. You didn't, you didn't know where you were going to end up with. The spaghetti. Yes, the spaghetti. And so the idea was, okay, um, what we should do is move to putting everything in functions. Of course, the functional programmers knew that already. Um, but that way, you have a single entry point and a single exit point. Even if you do early returns, you're still exiting at this single point. And that way, you have a scope. And the scope allows you to say, all right, you build things, we can make sure that they get all cleaned up, everything, you know, drop the stack pointer for all the stuff that you need. Everything that you do gets cleaned up as you exit the function. So we have small scopes all over the place instead of one giant scope where we're jumping all over the place. So that's where the go-to considered harmful. And then um, uh, Nathaniel Smith wrote, you know, a number of years ago, wrote this blog post called Go Statement Considered Harmful. And I think he was specifically talking about the Go statement in the Go language, because you just say, go, fire off a function. And then the function's off there running. When does it ever get collected? Uh, how do you get the result? How do you cancel it? Uh, where, you you've know, kind of lost the linear you basically the lost yeah you're, you're just firing it off very back into go go to's which yeah very similar to to uh, jumps the, the and the reason that they had to fight their way out of it is because so many people were coming from assembly language programming and that was just how you did it you didn't you didn't write all these nice little neat functions you just jumped and so they had to be pushed into using functions and now that's kind of the standard way of thinking of things well we write functions everywhere so what um this blog post suggested and i don't think he was the first one to come up with it but he made it as clear as possible um is that well we need a kind of a different kind of a scope and so we create a scope we create tasks within that scope and then the scope guarantees that those tasks are finished before we exit the scope and so th that, that's kind of the foundation of structured concurrency. But there's some other things which are not completely clear to me. It seems like you also need a reliable cancellation mechanism and a reliable error handling mechanism. And uh, Python has, uh, well, I mentioned the cancellation stuff. But it also, in the most recent version, has added um, called something called exception groups. So it's something that is treated like a normal exception, but it can actually hold multiple exceptions within it. Because if you fire off a bunch of tasks, they could all fail, or you know, multiple ones that fail. And if there's only, if if the first exception is the only one you hear, then the rest of them get lost. And so that was why it was necessary to add this feature in Python. But, um, so the task, uh, the, or the error group, what was it called? Um, uh, exception group. Exception group allows you to have these different 
things concurrently and then aggregate the errors um, across the all of the things that fail can come back into an exception group. And it seems like that that has to be inherently connected to structured exceptions because the exception group is what comes back from the scope that is managing the exceptions. Yeah, I just realized that this moment. It's like, okay, that's got to be tied to that uh, exception scope yeah. that is creating those tasks because who else are they going to report to? And it, and it has to be to that scope. So, yeah, I would say that both, um, both uh, cancellation and error handling almost have to be an essential part of um, structured exception uh, stru of structured concurrency yeah yeah and I think the what structured concurrency tries to do is say all right a function a, a given function is not enough to model the things that you need when you're in a concurrent world but how do we avoid the the go-to spaghettiness and we have to be able to have a bunch of things running concurrently and get back the results from those things and the errors from those things and cancel cancel things when when mm -hmm. needed um, and so yeah it seems like like it was like okay a function doesn't give you the cancellation the the error aggregation all that stuff and so we need another concept there and structured concurrency gives us that concept one of the things I've wondered about with structured concurrency is we call it structured concurrency, but what is the structure of it? And the only the only thing that I've seen is a hierarchical structure where you have uh, you have a something that owns children essentially, but then those children can have other children and so on. So you can create a hierarchy if you want to, mm -hmm. or you can keep it a single depth um, tree. Um, but but the hierarchy with having a parent and children. Uh, is is the only structure that I've seen for. I would argue concurrency. that the what's in common between a function and structure concurrency is scope. Mm. So it's like I'm creating a scope in both cases, yeah. and the the structure concurrency thing is like it's a different kind of a scope. Yeah. But and then when you start looking at these things, you, well, and you look at Rust and you look at its lifetime. You go, oh, the lifetime seems like it's maybe a different kind of scope as well. And that's, mm. I think that's what it comes down to. It's like we humans. It's all about can, scope. Yes, we humans can only handle a little bit of stuff at once. And so we have to make sure that that's, you know, clean and independent so that we can reason about it. Mm. And then, so by creating these scopes, we achieve that. Yeah. Yeah, it's all. It must all be about scope. Whether it's mm -hmm. it's function. The way that we avoid the spaghettiness is by scoping things, and in the case of structured concurrency, is scoping with cancellation, uh, concurrency, and error handling. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, I mean, you know, way back when you were, I don't know if you remember Modula, the language Modula, Modula yeah. two. Well, that that the whole. Uh, evolution there was the idea of modules, which is another kind of scope, and Rust has those. You know, we saw that with, you know, you can have your library code, and in the same file, you can create a module, which is just for um, tests, for example. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, it's a different uh, form of scoping. Yeah, I guess it's what the compiler sees. 
something to something to do with that. So, in the the Go statement considered harmful article, he introduces his own framework, which was for Python, I think, right? Trio, uh, right? And their abstraction was the nursery. Mm-hmm. So that's their that's the, scope. the nursery yeah, that's is the scope. The scope. Yeah. 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 yeah, and then every so you create a nursery, and then each time you create a task, you um, create it from that nursery object. And then, um, and then Python itself changed. So its async IO library has a task group, and that which is, like is the nursery. which is basically the same thing, but ultimately just a scope. And but the thing about the task group is that it also manages the exception groups. Mm-hmm. So which and I wrote a blog post, uh, I think the last one I wrote, where I looked at that and I said, oh, so. Async.io, the standard Python library, has this uh, structured exception handling that it works with its task group, but Trio doesn't. I mean, because it, it almost has to be part of the language. So uh, it seems like the um, Async.io library is um, more useful than mm-hmm. Trio can be. And so I'm not sure. That was the question I left. To the language support for, yeah. for the exception mm-hmm. group. Right, so I'm not sure if I mean my in you know my result was oh I think I want to use the task groups because it has this better support mm-hmm. and I'm not even sure if, if Trio or any of the other third party libraries I suppose they could probably catch up with it but I'm not sure anyway it's there now so and we was a week or two ago did get the. Uh, the Python Easy Racer uh, async IO stuff all working. Yes, so that was that was nice to, mm-hmm. to see. Um, so I think for structured concurrency, the the kind of primitive that I've seen across now many different languages is the idea of a nursery or, or a scope. Mm-hmm. And the way that it gets used is you create your scope and then you add tasks into that scope mm-hmm. and then you determine um, what you want to do with those tasks that are that are now in this scope, and so the the two typical ones are uh, a race, which is often called a select, and the select says, as soon as one task in the scope completes either with an error or with a value, then cancel all the other things in that scope and pass that one thing out to uh, to to your consumer. And so that select is what we used in many of the easy racer ones because a lot of them are race-based um, structured concurrency challenges. And so select seems to be pretty universal for structured concurrency, the idea of the scope and then, and then being able to do a select. Uh, the other approach, once you have your things in your scope, is a join is what it's called in, um, in Rust. And Trying to think of most languages names. have a join yeah and so the join says run all these things and just give me back all of the results and exceptions from all of those things mm-hmm. and so so those are kind of the two I think kind of primitive um, things that you can do once you have a structured concurrency scope but what structured concurrency I mean normally you would like without structured concurrency you would create a bunch of tasks and then you would put a join to, to at some point you would basically artificially create your own scope that way. So what structured concurrency does effectively is it puts 
it quietly puts its own join in at the end of the scope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Python one, we did have to, and I think some of the scenarios, do the join, but then manually manage cancellation of the tasks. So we were we were doing a race on top of a join, and I don't remember why. What? <laughs> but you know. but, but what we would do is do our join, and then as soon as we got one of the the uh, things in the scope to complete then we would cancel all the others. And so we were kind of doing manual a manual select. Or yes, because like was there not a, a select in async? I there I there remember. was, so uh, there was, but there was some of the scenarios where it didn't work for us, and I can't remember mm-hmm. the details on why it didn't work. So then we had to kind of do our own, our own select. Okay. Yeah. yeah uh, we had to essentially create our own select implementation that worked the way that we needed it to. Um, so in Kotlin, I mean, because this is the first place that I came across the idea of structured concurrency was in Kotlin. When we do structured concurrency, you, of course, know what that means. <laughs> that was the, the implication, and so which I didn't. And um, so now I'm wondering, I mean, now if I went back and looked at it, I'd probably have a much better idea of what was going on. But um, did they also handle cancellation and errors? Yep. Yeah, okay. so coroutines in Kotlin do mm-hmm. handle both cancellation and error management. So if you call a coroutine uh, and it throws an exception, it is exception-based, but if you throw an exception, then that will cancel your, your other children uh, that are in that same scope. And so, so yeah. What, was, what if you get multiple exceptions? Um, I think it depends on the implementation of select or join that you're using mm-hmm. and what happens there. Um, I'd have to go look at it, but okay. um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have those questions in mind when I was initially looking at it. And now I go, oh, here are the things that you need to have for, to, to have a, a, you know, a task system that actually uh, works effectively and doesn't drop things on the floor. Yeah. Got to have cancellation and reliable, you know, you don't lose either cancellation messages or any of the exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, and so with the the Rust structure concurrency one, as we mentioned, we were using select for most of the scenarios are, are a basic race. Mm-hmm. And so it was pretty straightforward. We make our request to the server, um, we do two of those concurrently, and then we do a select, and the first one that comes back is the winner, and we return it. and. That was all pretty straightforward with the, the uh, Tokyo Select macro. Um, but then we, there's one scenario, I think scenario nine, where we have to do a bunch of concurrent requests and aggregate the results, and we use the Tokyo join mm-hmm. uh, for that one. Uh, and then the, the, the 10,000 concurrent request race, where you're racing 10,000 concurrent requests, we weren't able to use the Select macro, as we talked about. And what we ended up doing was we had to have some way to kind of track the 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 progress of these ten thousand requests, and then and then be able mm. to get the result out. And so we found in Tokyo, there's the multi-producer single consumer channel. I think is what we use M- MPSC, uh, and that allowed us to to make our ten thousand concurrent requests. When one comes back, 
we put that in the channel. Um, so we, we push to the, uh, the transmit result. side, the result to the transmit mm-hmm. side. And then we, um, outside of all that, our 10,000 concurrent requests, we can just wait for something to come into the channel. And when something comes into the channel, then, then we return it. And I think managed through the lifecycle stuff in, in uh, Rust, it automatically then cancels the other 9,999 who were the, the losers essentially in that case. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have to manually do any cancellation or anything. It was just right. all uh, automatic. Yeah, the contrast between cooperative multitasking and preemptive multitasking is that when you have uh, threads or processes that are preemptive, that means that they can be interrupted at any time, which means that trying to do correct cancellation or error handling or anything becomes um, either really difficult or impossible. I definitely came across things that said, oh, just don't write any code that can't be canceled at any time. can't be terminated. In fact, they use the term terminated because it's very heavy-handed. And so it seems like only with cooperative multitasking do you have the ability to, you know, easily, correctly cancel and correctly handle errors. Yeah. So that's a, that's a different benefit than I was thinking of when you go back and, and look at these other things. It's, it's much, I, th- I think it's why we've had some libraries that don't do that correctly is because traditionally, when you've got threads or processes, you just kind of have to go, well, either you have to be a very clever, careful programmer, and probably you still won't get it right, yeah. or, um, or just write your code so carefully that it can be stopped at any point. You, you can never, um, like, take a, a, you can never have a, hold a lock, because you could be holding a lock and then your task is dropped and then everything is, any, anybody else who's using that lock is, is screwed. So it's very... Uh, yeah, I think the, the resource safety piece is, is really crucial in the world of structured concurrencies. You have to, way, have to have a way to safely cancel things that can clean up any resources that that, that thing is holding on to. And in, I think in all the structured concurrency stuff we've used, there, there definitely is that like cancellation resource safety handling mm-hmm. happening. Um, a lot of times in our cases underneath the covers, cause what we're, what we have is a connection to the server, which needs to be cleaned up. And so the, the actual HTTP client library is the one that is seeing that the thing is canceled and then doing the cleanup of closing the connection mm-hmm. um, for us. So we didn't have to, in the case of easy racer, do much of that. Or on our own, it was handled uh, handled correctly by the HTTP client library. Right. Um, but we we validated that. Yeah, sure enough, it is doing the right thing on cancellation. It's closing the connection. That's the. I mean, the nice thing about cooperative um, concurrency is that you have these known suspension points, and so the compiler can look at those and go, "All right, I know this is where I need to." store the necessary things so that the task can be suspended and then and and that's also why it can be such a small thing why you can have you know hundreds of thousands or millions of tasks because each of them doesn't have to store 
the entire stack frame because it knows where you're suspending. And that's true with also um, with cancellation that happens at those suspension points if it's automated like it is in Python, of course, if you do it yourself. But in both cases, the scope of everything means that um, like in, in Rust, things get dropped and that's where that cleanup happens for, yeah. you, for your server connection. Yeah. Everything that's in scope gets dropped when you return from it. Yeah. Yeah, so the scenario for this one that we did in Easy Racer, where Easy Racer tries to validate that you're doing this correctly, is you race two connections, but one of them needs to have a one second timeout. So you open the connection, you wait a second, and then it needs to close before the other one wins the race. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the Easy Racer server won't let you win the race until you've correctly done that, mm -hmm. that timeout. That's the rules, yeah, yeah that you set rules. up. And, and so in the Rust version, we just wrapped our request with a timeout, mm -hmm. which is part of Tokyo, and the timeout did the correct thing. It, you know, it knew that there was a task that it needed to run and start, and then, then timeout cancels that task, and then that closed the connection, which allowed the other connection to, to win the race. Um, so that was all verified to work and pretty straightforward uh, in, in Tokyo in Rust, so that was... Nice. So Rust does do threading, so that makes me wonder, what's the cleanup story in that case? Yeah, we didn't play with the, the thread all. stuff in, in Rust. We were on Tokyo, which is all mm -hmm. green threads, fiber-based, and so it's, mm -hmm. all, it's doing all the management of actually executing stuff on threads for you, and we didn't dive into how that works, but I do remember there was a great blog post about Tokyo's scheduler which has some, some pretty, uh, at the time, had some pretty significant advancements for doing mm -hmm. fiber-based scheduling on onto um, threads and all that, uh, and, and doing it efficiently and doing uh, alleviating <laughs> things like headline blocking and a lot of the problems that you often run into with a, with a naive, simple scheduler. They did some uh, impressive optimizations and uh, automatic management around, uh, which, then inspired Zio's uh, in Zio two the Zio two scheduler uh, was was I think pretty inspired by Tokyo's scheduler for how the oh. how the actual scheduling of tasks works. So. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, there was a talk I think it was by Adam and the Zio team about uh, the inspiration for Zio two scheduler hmm. and how they learned a lot from the Tokyo scheduler. Hmm. Yeah, I have written something using threads. But they that was embarrassingly parallel, yeah. and it just ran to completion. I I had no uh, worries about cleanup or errors or anything. So, so I haven't really experimented with that at this point. But now I'm curious. It seemed like a lot of the Tokyo APIs mirrored the thread-based APIs, mm -hmm. and so maybe it wouldn't be too hard to to take what we did and do it on top of threads and see. There's any real mm -hmm. difference or anything, but yeah, yeah. So we continue to learn about structured concurrency and different approaches. Definitely seems like the the commonality is the structure, having a, a scope that you mm -hmm. put things in, uh, the cancellation, the error handling, the resource management, all that stuff seems to be pretty common. There are. Um, one thing that is that 
I do like in the world of Scala around this is that there are some higher level APIs for structured concurrency that I haven't seen built in some of the other languages and frameworks that we've worked with. So for instance, if you want to um, do uh, a, a join essentially, but, but take only all the successes in mm -hmm. Scala Zio, there's a collect all successes par or something like that. And that will just, you know, you give it your list of essentially um, tasks and it will just give you back the list of all the things that successfully completed. And you can certainly do that with a, a join, um, but you have to do some manual stuff uh, after the fact because the join is just going to give you back the errors and values. And so then you have to filter out the errors. And we did this one in the Rust one where we had to manually filter out the errors. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it wasn't too hard to, to do, but it's certainly nice to have some of the higher level APIs on top of this stuff. To be fair, we didn't go looking for uh, crates that might do that. And that's very well possible. Could, could be a crate that, yeah, would, that would do a collect all successes par mm -hmm. uh, on top of the, uh, the Tokyo join. So yeah, yeah definitely could exist. Yeah. We didn't, but we didn't, you're right. No, we, we didn't look, we were just trying to solve this problem, which was yeah. fine, but now I'm curious, because a lot of times when you go, gee, I wonder if this exists in Rust, it typically does. Like, there's a whole lot of Python libraries that if, you know, if there's a library you like, and you go, huh, I wonder if it exists in Rust. Very often it does. There yeah. seems to be a lot of back and forth between the two communities. Yeah. Somebody, uh, Somebody even called it. They said, oh, I know Python and Rust are best friends now. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, any other thoughts on structured concurrency? Uh, there will be, but there not will. right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah still, still figuring it out. Continue exploring that. And, uh, the Easy Eraser repo is up on my GitHub. James yep. Ward, Easy Eraser. And with all the implementations, there's now yeah, different languages. Kotlin, Scala, Rust, Go. Python, Go, Swift, mm -hmm. Elm. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's been a fun place to explore this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's been a good learning experience. Yeah. Cool. Any last thoughts? No, it was a good week. Yeah, yeah. week of fun. Rust developer retreat. Yeah, it was. It was great. All right. Well. Thanks for being here and yeah. look forward to more.